Hey everybody, my name is Sarah Kreger. I'm an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA, and this is the ICU-EDU podcast. So this is mistakes number two. Um, and I'd like to say thank you to everybody who sent me positive feedback on mistakes number one episode. It seems like um, this is something that is resonating with people because, you know, we all make them. Uh, one of the people who actually emailed me was a ER physician in Montreal, and he had the really great idea about getting together with colleagues, just like in an informal setting over beers, not the like formal M&M, everybody dresses up and wears their white coats, but just getting together with colleagues over beers and talking about the small mistakes um, and just having a conversation. And I really love that idea. But for the moment, this is mistakes number two. So the first mistake of part two. Um, this was a woman in her late 40s, and she had a history of pretty significant fibroids, but she was also bipolar and had a pretty extensive substance abuse history. And she'd gone to the OR for a myomectomy. Now, obviously, most 40-some-year-olds who go for a myomectomy don't end up in the ICU. But with this lady, you know, she got a bunch of propofol during induction, and then in the OR proceeded to get really unstable, needed some pressors, and just wasn't quite behaving as you would expect an otherwise relatively healthy 40-year-old to behave. Now, the thinking at the time was maybe she just, you know, was a little anemic, had been bleeding from the fibroids, and hadn't gotten sufficient product resuscitation before surgery. And that combined with the aggressive propofol for induction caused the instability. Regardless, they decided that, you know what, we're just going to watch her in the ICU overnight. So they brought her to the ICU afterwards. Um, she was still intubated. I got her extubated. Um, and then when I went to reassess her, you know, she was still a little sleepy from anesthesia, but breathing fine. The pressors had all been weaned off. Her blood pressure was okay. And in my head, I was like, okay, I can check off that. That was an easy admission. Great. A couple hours later, um, I'm downstairs admitting a different patient from the ED. And this patient's nurse calls me for quote-unquote agitation. Now, in my head, I'm like, okay, you know, I've already decided this patient is probably not that sick. I don't know quite what happened in the OR, but she's probably fine. And she does have this psych and substance abuse history. It doesn't seem crazy that she's agitated. So I gave her a little held doll. All right. Hour, maybe two go by. I'm still down in the ED. It was just one admission after another. And I get another call from the same nurse who was like, yeah, you know, she got the hell doll and she was a little better, but um, she's she's not really, really agitated again. And she's like trying to climb out of bed and she's just, she's really agitated. And I was like, okay, you know, let me give you one more round of hell doll and I'll come reassess her when I can. Now, fortunately for me, it just so happens that, um, you know, her room was on my way back to the charge nurse station when I was walking back through the ICU. Because by the time I got back to the ICU, I sort of was focusing on other things. I needed to put in the orders for these new admissions. And I, you know, probably would have stopped by that room eventually, but wouldn't necessarily have gone there first thing if it wasn't for the fact that I walked by that room. And I did one of those, like, I walk by and I stop and I walk back and I'm like, hey, this lady doesn't look so good because she just, even from the doorway, did not look good on the eyeball test. I mean, her monitor was not great, but not terrible, right? Like she's tachycardic and at this point, like mildly hypertensive, but she looked awful. She's sort of that unpleasant gray color that always portends badness. She's diaphoretic. She's super agitated, but she was also lying sort of flat-ish and was like struggling to try and sit up. 
So I go in and she's just awful looking. And um, ultimately, you know, she pericoded on me very shortly thereafter. And it turned out that she had undiagnosed, profound heart failure. Um, unclear exactly what it was due to because she was pretty young, possibly meth, I don't know. But like she was in profound cardiogenic shock. And that's almost certainly why she did not tolerate propofol induction and well in the OR and needed some pressors, but, you know, then got a little better. But the other thing they did in the OR was give her some volume. And so then she comes back to the ICU, initially looks okay, but then that all starts to catch up to her. She gets worse. And what do we do? Well, I do the thing I tell my residents not to do, which is sedate her through her quote-unquote agitation, failing to remember that, you know what makes patients agitated? When they can't breathe. And I tell this to my residents all the time. And... um and this was a thing that I missed. And, you know, fortunately, I was able to resuscitate her and she ultimately did okay. But, you know, if I hadn't just purely gotten lucky and walked by her room on my way back from the ED, um, it's very possible that she could have coded before I figured out that it wasn't just that she was agitated. She was actually, you know, she couldn't breathe. She was in cardiogenic shock. So why did this happen? Um, I can think of really, I think, three things that I can work on that got me into this situation. And the three things that I've thought of is one, preconceptions, two, bias, and three, what I'd like to call trust but verify. So in terms of preconceptions, one of the dangers, I think, that we find in the ICU that I find less in the ED is that in the ICU, we think we know what we're dealing with. We think we know our patients. We think we know what's going on because we've had time to figure it out. So we end up with a lot of preconceptions about our patients. And in her case, in my head, I was like, all right, she was just here for fibroid surgery. Nobody, you know, really is telling me she has any other medical history other than maybe psych and substance abuse. And I'd seen her and I decided she looked pretty fine. So I sort of mentally triaged her off the list of patients I needed to worry about that night. So I think that's one issue, is that preconceptions. But I think a second issue that really hurt me in this clinical scenario was bias. And in this case, you know, we all like to say that we're not biased against anyone and anything. But this was a woman who had a psych history, a real psych history and a real substance abuse history. And that made it really easy for me to be like, oh, yeah, sure, she's just agitated, right? Like, she probably didn't get her psych meds today. I don't know if she withdrawing from something, but like, sure, she could just be agitated. And I think that that bias is probably a lot of what prevented me from sort of hitting that mental reset button because I've made enough mistakes that have been not hitting my mental reset button where whenever a patient isn't sort of behaving as I expect them to or something doesn't seem quite right, where I hit that mental reset button and I'm like, okay, I need to pause. I need to throw out everything I think I know, start from the top, and systematically reassess my approach and my thinking about this patient. And maybe I wouldn't have done that on the first time the nurse called me about agitation, but I might have done it on the second, but I think, you know, because of my own bias that we all have it and we don't really think about it, I probably made it easier for me to just be like, yeah, no, sure, she could be agitated. She has a psych and substance abuse history. So I think that was absolutely a problem. 
The third thing is what I like to call the trust but verify situation. So the other thing about this case is that this was a really new nurse. Now, because of all the nursing shortages in the ED and the ICU, I'm sure all of you are having the same experience that like, there's a lot of new nurses and like basically new grads. And, you know, it's interesting because I find that a lot of them sort of have a sense there's something wrong but can't always express to me exactly what's wrong or exactly why. And this nurse was calling me to express something is wrong. Something is wrong with this patient. Now, with a more experienced nurse, they might have been like, yeah, you know, she seems like she's breathing pretty hard or something like that. Or like maybe would have given me some more specific information about the respiratory rate or the vitals that might have led me there sooner. But again, you know, this is on me to trust but verify. And I knew this was a new nurse at the time. And, you know, I think I fell into the trap that patients are, quote, agitated overnight. It's really tempting to just give them a little hell doll, sometimes a little Ativan, although I hate Ativan, but that's another story. But basically, fail to remember that patients get agitated when they can't breathe or when they're going into shock. And you shouldn't think agitation means agitation first. Agitation meaning agitation should be almost a diagnosis of exclusion. So that was first mistake. Let's talk about another patient. Um, this next patient um, was this guy and he just had this really unfortunate confluence of disease processes. So he is a guy in his you know late 50s, early 60s, and he's morbidly obese. He has a history of pulmonary hypertension, couple admissions for RV failure, but he also unfortunately has a history of end-stage renal disease on chronic hemodialysis with a fistula. Now, that's just a really not ideal thing, those two things, pulmonary hypertension and in-stage renal disease on dialysis, because so much of your management of pulmonary hypertension is getting their volume status just right. So what had happened with this patient is that he'd come in during the day with pretty clear cardiogenic shock, like acute decompensated right ventricular failure. And I was on a night shift, and by the time I arrived that night for my night shift, um, he'd actually already gotten dialyzed through his fistula during the day. He'd gotten a hemodialysis run. They'd gotten maybe one and a half to two liters off of volume. But, you know, his pressure had been kind of borderline this entire time. And frankly, it was borderline before he started dialysis. Um, but, you know, it makes people uncomfortable to dialyze patients with borderline blood pressure. So they stopped a little early. He probably didn't get off as much volume as he should have. Now, when I assessed him that night, um, he was pretty clearly shocking. You know, he didn't look good. He wasn't intubated, but like just didn't look great. Um, he was tachycardic, tachypnic. His blood pressures were not great. Um, he was on norepi at the time and his lactate was going up and his numbers just didn't look good. But, you know, there were still some things I could do to optimize him medically. So I switched up his vasopressors from norepi to a little epi and vaso. I started some inhaled ibuprofenol. Um, and he got a little bit better, or at least I could be like, yeah, this is a little, he looks maybe a little less pale and maybe a little better. Maybe his lactate, you know, is no longer four, it's 3.8. Um, but, you know, he wasn't looking good and he just was smoldering over the course of the night. 
Now, I did hit a mental reset button with him because I did echo him to be like, let me just make sure that I'm treating the right category of shock. Like, I knew this guy from previous admissions. I knew he had pulmonary hypertension. And so I was like, let me just make sure, like, you know, he's also a guy with end-stage renal disease and a fistula, so he could also be bacteremic. He could be septic shock. So I sort of sent some more studies. I ultrasounded him up and down. I did a full, like, let's look for infection. And, um, you know, all of that putting it together, it really seemed like, no, we were right the first time. This was cardiogenic shock. Now, I kept sort of messing with things. I messed with his vasoactives. I added some milrinone. But I knew by sort of midway through the night that what he really needed was just more volume off. I mean, that's the only thing that was going to get him better. And I know perfectly well that often with acute decompensated right ventricular failure, because of the shape of the starling curve for the right ventricle, often you need to take off quite a bit of volume before you really start to see them getting better. Now, he was, in theory, supposed to get another round of hemodialysis the next day through his fistula, but we didn't have a time scheduled yet. And so at some point, I started going back and forth with myself about whether I should just start CRT that night. But since he's been getting dialyzed through a fistula, that meant I would need to take this morbidly obese patient who's super decipnic and looking really bad and find a place to put in a, a dialysis line for CRT. In addition, um, at this place I work, because I work at two different places, but at this place, it's actually not that logistically straightforward to initiate CRT in the middle of the night. And the nursing shortage means that it would have put a strain on the nursing staff because we would have had to rearrange so he could have somebody one-to-one -one with CRT. So I sort of was wishy-washy and I just was like, oh, we'll just wait. I'll keep sort of messing around with the pressers and the drips and whatever. Then at like 5 a.m., I get called to the bedside because he's now like really, really hemodynamic deteriorating. He's now like pericoding. I ended up having to push some push dose epi and then ultimately basically ended up having to emergently place a dialysis line in this like obese guy, morbidly obese, severe distress, which wasn't fun, and then emergently call for CRT. And what I really should have done is just like committed to CRT hours earlier. So why did that not go well? Because I do think that if I maybe at least had started CRT hours earlier in the night, maybe I wouldn't have ended up in that situation. So I identified three different things here that I think led to this. The first is what I'm calling trigger shy. The second is a failure to identify a vicious cycle. And the third is letting non-medical barriers dictate care. So trigger shy. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there's some more formal name for this, um, but I think it's really important in resuscitation, emergency, and critical care. And for example, we see this kind of thing with crikes all the time, um, where it's not that doing a crike is so difficult technically most of the time. It's that what's difficult for us is pulling the trigger to make the decision to do it. Sometimes you'll see the same thing, you know, when first starting chest compressions in a cardiac arrest patient that, you know, if you're just taking that step, that extra step, there's just this unwillingness to pull the trigger, even when like really you should medically, you're just like, eh, you're waiting too long. Now, there's a difference between being like, you know what, I really do have more time to decide this. For example, with the crike, you know, I'm bagging the patient successfully, and I've only tried one airway approach, I'm going to try a different approach, so I've decided proactively I have time before I need to pull that trigger. But that's different than just eh, not quite being ready to pull it, not quite wanting to pull it yet. 
And I think with him, with all this sort of barriers of, oh, I got to put in the HD line and I got to figure this out logistically overnight, um, it was making me trigger shy. And past the point that I should have been, like past the point when I was like, no, there's other things I can do. Instead, I just made that decision for the wrong reason. Part of, I think, why I was being sort of wishy-washy about committing to that decision is I hadn't fully really materialized or crystallized that what I was seeing was somebody in a vicious cycle. And the thing about vicious cycle physiology, it doesn't even matter what the vicious cycle is, this is not when you wait. Because the longer you wait, the harder this is going to get. And if you wait too long, the whole situation is going to go off the rails. So what do I mean by that? Um, you know, a great example is cardiorenal syndrome, where basically, you know, somebody's in heart failure and they're in cardiogenic shock and they are volume overloaded because they're not peeing. Why are they not peeing? Because they can't perfuse their kidneys. So then they get more volume overloaded. So then they're really not perfusing their kidneys. So then they're really not peeing and so forth and so on. And that's the kind of thing, if you let it go on too long, then you're going to end up sort of falling apart at some point. And this guy was just really getting worse and worse. I mean, he just, I know perfectly well that at some point, if you have a pulmonary hypertension RV failure patient and you don't start taking volume off them in time, what's going to happen is they're going to go from an RV that is a really high pressure, thickened RV that's still, you know, chronic pulmonary hypertension, big, thick Olympic trained RV that can still push forward against those pulmonary pressures. But at some point, if that volume gets too high, they're going to blow out their RV. And that RV is just going to start to dilate. And then it's really going to snowball and it's just not going to be able to push fluid forward anymore. And you have a window there in these chronic patients where their RV, it's chronically used to high pressures. It can sort of hold up for a while. And that's the window you need to start taking volume off during. Because if you wait till all that volume just blows out your RV and now you're like, dilated and is no God, then that's when you get in trouble. And I think that's what happened with this guy is that I failed to identify how late we were in this vicious cycle. And so I didn't move quickly enough to really do the definitive thing, which was to get volume off him. Finally, letting non-medical barriers dictate care. So we do this all the time. I mean, you know, the most common time we do this is surviving sepsis campaign fluids, right? I mean, where we'll just give 30 cc's per kilo, not because we necessarily believe that medically makes any sense in a patient, but because, you know, we don't want to have to put in a central line and do pressors in front of the ICU and we'll get angry emails from administrators if we don't give enough fluid, none of which has anything to do with the patient or the patient's physiology, but we're letting it dictate care. And in this case, Part of, I think, why I was just trigger shy and not pulling the CRT trigger was just that, you know, I knew that it was going to be hard. I would have to convince a bunch of people that we needed CRT in the middle of the night. We would have to sort of find a dialysis nurse somewhere and call her in in the middle of the night. We'd have to totally arrange the nursing structure, the unit, so we could do it. And, you know, you're part of a healthcare system. Like, yes, you should take into account all of those things. And do I really need this right now? Because stressing your system further is not the right thing to do, but sometimes you have to. And so I think that was the last part is that I spent too much time and or gave too much weight to the non-medical barriers instead of the patient physiology in front of me. All right. Now let's talk about the third mistake in this series. So the third mistake in this series 
um, was this patient and it was a guy in his maybe thirties. Um, and he had all kinds of baseline chronic disease, um, and spina bifida and all kinds of other stuff. And he was chronically traked and vented, um, as an outpatient. And he came into the ED with pneumonia and lots and lots of like really thick, copious gummy secretions. And, you know, he's on a vented baseline, but he was requiring, you know, more aggressive vent settings in his baseline. So I admitted him to the ICU overnight. Um, you know, I put him on some metanebs, gave him some antibiotics. And then two days later, um, you know, he'd been downgraded to the PCU during the day because he was back on his baseline vent settings. And then I come in overnight and, um, you know, a couple hours after I start my shift, there is a code blue called in PCU. So I head over there and um, it turned out to be this patient. And he was like a, you know, sort of delicate blue color. His lips were that like lovely periwinkle that never bodes well. And the story the bedside nurse gave me was pretty consistent with a simple respiratory arrest, right? Like basically it sounds like he started desatting, then he started turning that blue color, then he became bradycardic, and then he arrested. So pretty clearly a respiratory arrest. Um, now, you know, I'd seen this patient a couple days ago and I knew he had really, really bad thick secretions. I also had started him on IPV and metanebs in the ICU to kind of address that, but, you know, they hadn't really been getting done so much in the PCU because the RTs are busy. They don't have enough of them. Fair enough. So I was pretty sure that this was mucus plugging, right? Like it just seemed so obvious to me that this is mucus plugging. So we're starting CPR. We're trying to bag the patient, trying to get suction to pass and like doing chest compressions, getting pads on him, the whole deal. And um, the RT takes over doing chest compressions because she was up there and I was relieving the first round of chest compressors. And she takes over doing chest compressions. And the RT is like, wait a minute, wait a minute, something's wrong. You're bagging and I feel air. And it turned out that it wasn't a huge mucus plug. This guy's trach had gotten displaced. And, you know, he was a big guy. And so like between like the trach collar and all the trach ties and like his gown, which was all up, you know, in his neck and like his big, big neck, it turned out that in fact, the trach had gotten displaced. So we're bagging through it. And like, it's not hard to bag through because I, I was like, is it hard to bag through? And they were like, no, 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 we can bag through. Okay. Well, of course it wasn't hard to bag through because we weren't actually bagging to anything. We were basically just bagging through the trach and it was going right side onto the RT's hands. And then I realized like, oh, the trach's not actually in his trachea. So then we, of course, you know, like put the trach back in. And fortunately, you know, this guy had been trached for years and years and years. So there wasn't a false passage or anything problematic like that. And then, of course, like we back him up once the trach's actually in the right place and he's fine. Now, I don't know exactly when the trach got displaced, but, you know, once we bagged him up, he was fine. He actually wasn't having a lot of secretions. It really did look like the pneumonia had basically resolved. So I kind of suspect that, you know, that's probably why he arrested in the first place. Like somehow the trach had gotten displaced and that's why he arrested. And thank God the RT noticed this or else who knows how long it would have taken me to figure out. And fortunately, you know, we figured this out pretty quickly and he ended up actually doing okay. But still, if she hadn't said something, I could have totally missed this for a while. So why did I make this mistake? What happened here? Well, I think the two cognitive things that I did, one, this is another preconception issue, and two, a failure to be systematic. 
So in terms of the preconception issue, this is the same thing as with our first patient, that I thought I knew what was happening with this patient. I'd seen him before, and, you know, he had a very good reason to potentially have had a respiratory arrest. And at the time that I saw him, that was his major problem, these, like, thick, gummy secretions. So I had this idea, this preconceived idea about what was going on with him. Um, so I think that that's preconceived notion number one. And I think that I, I failed to do that stop mental reset button in the middle of the code because I was just, you know, cognitively overloaded because it was a code and whatever it was. But like, I should have hit that mental reset with my preconception, but I thought I knew what was happening. But I think the bigger problem here was my failure to do systematic, organized problem solving here. Now, I have a thing about um, mnemonics because during a code, people will be like, well, just go through your H's and T's. And that's how you sort of, you know, make sure you don't miss anything during a code. And I agree with the sentiment that we should do something systematic, especially in high stress situations when it'd be so easy to miss something when you're under stress. But I hate mnemonics. And, you know, aside from the fact that I can never actually remember them, like I really can never remember most mnemonics. But even aside from that, I just don't really think that mnemonics are a good cognitive strategy for physicians, especially for expert physicians. If you are trying to become expert in what you're doing, I just don't think mnemonics are the way to go. Why not, though? Well, here's the thing about mnemonics. Mnemonics organize information in a way that has nothing intrinsically to do with the information itself right? Like your organizational structure for this information is, you know, according to what letter you can make things start with, which has nothing to do with the content, with the informational content. And I think there's a reason that you don't really see most experts using mnemonics. And I think that's why, is because experts, what really makes an expert an expert is how they organize information, how they chunk information. I think a really interesting aside about this um, is some interesting studies they've done on expertise in chess. Um, and it turns out that chess masters can recall many more pieces on a chess board compared to novices by like orders of magnitude. But there's a catch because they can only recall more pieces on a chess board when it's a chess board that could occur in an actual chess game. If you just randomly put a bunch of randomly placed chess pieces on a chessboard, your chess masters aren't really much better than your novices in remembering where all the pieces were. Why? Because what the chess masters are remembering is not a random assortment of things. It's a pattern. That's what they're doing. They have a way of organizing information that allows them to recall it. And mnemonics are functionally the same as randomly organized chess pieces. And so I think that what we should really be doing on our path to expertise is trying to figure out organized problem-solving approaches where we organize the information in a way that makes sense given the content of that information. Because when I say I don't think that the H's and T's are a great cognitive strategy for a code, I need to make clear that I'm not simply proposing that, you know, your alternative strategy is to think really hard and cross your fingers that you aren't missing anything. I think we need, for exactly this reason, exactly this example, to all have an organized and systematic problem-solving approach during a code and during any sort of high-stress, high-risk resuscitation. But 
I think that it needs to be something that is organically organized around the problem you're trying to solve. Now, I talk about this in more detail um, in the updated talk on cardiac arrest that I'm about to post. But for example, and for this example, in cardiac arrest, what I mean by this is that my personal systematic problem-solving approach in cardiac arrest and the sort of differential diagnosis for causes of the cardiac arrest is not the H's and T's. My sort of organic, or at least to me more organic, problem-solving approach in cardiac arrest is to go through three major categories of arrest causes, respiratory, hemodynamic, and metabolic. And if I had done that systematically, I would have caught this because the first thing under respiratory is airway. And I failed to be systematic. And I think it was a matter of, you know, this was almost morning. I was tired and I just had a vigilance slip. And it was easy to have a vigilance slip because I thought I knew what was going on with the patient. And I sort of failed to be systematic because of all those preconceptions. Okay. So that concludes Mistakes, episode number two. Thanks for listening.